This is the Bama Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we will spend time in the second chapter of Galatians, bringing some context to a much misunderstood and often misrepresented passage. We are just getting into the, the stuff that I get questions about all the time. People always want to know, okay, what about the Jews and the Gentiles? What about Torah? What about the law? What about eating kosher? And I always say, wait until session four. And now we're finally getting into it. So fun. Over the weekend, I was at a family family member's restaurant, a new restaurant, and they have um, one of their appetizers is a pint of bacon. It's a pint glass with thick cut bacon. And we ordered that immediately. (laughs) Well, let's explain that. Let's explain. Yeah, why is that okay? How the pint of bacon will become the metaphor for the rest of our study in the book of Galatians. What restaurant is this? Let's give them a plug here. They got a pint of bacon. It is called the Backyard Tap House in Florence, Montana, just south of Missoula. All right, well, there you go. Any of our Baymont listeners got a, a Missoula group? Go find the yeah Backyard Tap House. Grab yeah. a pint of bacon. It's a beautiful little drive down there. Except for our Jewish listeners, they have other foods too. You know, there's, That's right. there's plenty of options. All right, let's talk more about this. We left off in our last conversation. We were wondering uh, what the result of Paul's continued ministry would be. We talked about how he received a call from God, a revelation that he said came uh, directly from Jesus Christ, and three years of training in Arabia and Damascus. Uh, Paul went and spent time with the key leaders of the early church, and he, he talked about two in particular, Peter and James. And in the last episode, we, he, he told the story about how re, he received their blessing. And so Paul was sent out by that church with Barnabas in the book of Acts. We have Galatians and Acts like weaving and intersecting all throughout this conversation here. But Paul got sent out by the church with Barnabas to be about the work of spreading this gospel he received from Jesus. So what could go wrong? We're set up for success. Must have been smooth sailing, right? Well, Brent, go ahead and open us up in chapter 2 of Galatians here. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and, meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. All right, so apparently their world has some pretty good similarities, Brent, to our world. Uh, There was still a significant amount of opposition to this work that Jesus had asked Paul to do. And others too, by the way. Not just Paul. He asked Barnabas to do this, asked Peter to do this. So God was asking others to do this work too. But uh, Paul emphasizes that letting their loud voices, this opposition, letting the opposition's loud voices win the day would be a loss for the gospel. So instead of being defeated or giving in, they persevered in their insistence that the good news, the gospel of what God is doing in the world through Jesus, invites all people to the table. So to be sure, this was in fact how the apostles felt about the ministry of Jesus. Paul and Barnabas, and get this, Brent, how many years later? Fourteen. Fourteen years later. So how many years did he spend in Arabia and Damascus? 
uh, three. Three. So he spent like a good college education in Arabia and Damascus, like a good solid few years of training, just like the disciples under Jesus. He went and got Peter and James's blessing, went about the work that they okayed him to do. And then 14 years later, this is still an issue. Like people are still raising heck about this. Like this is still a problem. 14 years later. And so he comes back to Jerusalem. This time he brings Titus. Now, Titus was from, can you remember where, Brent? Where was Titus from? An island. Crete. Crete. He was a Cretan. Now, that, that means that Titus isn't just Greek. Like, he's a barbaric Greek. Those Cretans. Oh, they had a saying about Cretans we'll look at later in the New Testament. They are, they are barbaric, pagan people. So he's just not like a Greek. Like, he's a Greek Greek. He's a pagan Greek. And so he brings him as like, like a test case. And they stood him in front of the church, the church leadership of some kind. They told his story and asked if he needed to be circumcised, which, by the way, don't just focus on the circumcision. Circumcision means much more than just circumcision itself. Circumcision is the sign of the covenant, the Jewish covenant. So when, so when they talk about circumcision, somebody needing to be circumcised, they're not just talking about that one command, that one law. They're asking about everything that the circumcision represents. So what they're really asking is does Titus have to eat kosher? Does he have to wear tassels? Does he have to be, does he have to be Jewish? That's the argument about circumcision. Whenever we read that circumcision, it's this, it's this larger, bigger picture. And so we understand, and so I'm going to review this. This can get, we can get lost in the weeds here pretty easily. So 14 years after Paul and Barnabas get sent out to do this work that Jesus has called them to do. 14 years later, this is still like this internal squabbling issue. So they come back to address it 14 years later, still committed to the unity of the church. They bring Titus as the test case because he's going to be the perfect like, okay, this is it. Like, I'm going to put this guy in front of you because if anybody needs to be circumcised, if anybody needs to eat kosher, this is it. This is a, this is a Greek uncircumcised Gentile pastor that we've commissioned on Crete. So does he need to be circumcised? And the church says, no. The church leadership says, no, he does not have to be circumcised. Go ahead and keep reading where you left off, Brent. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles, and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. So Paul continues to say that the leaders of the church didn't even want to make adjustments to his message. So not only, not only did they re-up their commitment, but he says they didn't want to make adjustments. Like I came back 14 years later. Now they've had plenty of time to think about it. Plenty of time to hear everybody's squeaky wheel arguments and all the people that are angry in the church, just like they had them, just like we got them today, they had them back then. And I think 14 years. Like, we're talking about the laws of Torah. Yeah, sure. They've gone through Torah 14 times in their synagogues on, sure. on Shabbat. Uh-huh. Like, yeah. like, there's some serious consideration happening here. Yeah. It's not like they forgot about a couple of things. Like, they've gone through it over and over and over again. Right. Absolutely. No, that's, that's a great point. And they, and after all that, they didn't even want to make adjustments. He said, 
they, they added nothing to my message is what he said there in the passage. They added nothing. So it wasn't like they were like, okay, Paul, yes, you've got the gospel, but we really think that you're kind of, you need to reemphasize this or you need to add this to your message or they, they added nothing, Paul says. They added nothing to my message. They agreed that the gospel he was sharing is in fact the announcement of God's work and kingdom on this earth. They reaffirmed and commissioned Paul, recommissioned Paul, to do the work of taking this gospel to the Gentiles in the same way Peter led the charge in taking it to the world of the Jews. Paul says Peter, James, and John gave them the right hand of fellowship, which is another way of saying they accepted him and his message as a part of their covenantal community. He was one of them. In the Roman world, Brent, they had this handshake, which is impossible to show on a podcast, but it's that, if anybody has seen that Roman handshake, you kind of grab forearms it's not, it's not that you grab palms, but you grab forearms together, and it communicates brotherhood. It's symbolic of you are kin, you are me, and I am you, and there's this shared brothership. So if they gave him the right hand of fellowship, it's their way of saying, yes, you are a part of this thing we are doing together. Not just a part, but you belong. You belong, absolutely, absolutely. This is important Above all else, because Peter, James, and John are called, what did he call them, Brent? He called them something. Pillars. Pillars of the church. This is a clear nod, by the way, to Jewish Midrash, which spoke of three other men as pillars. Who do you think they spoke of, Brent? Uh, Moses. Okay, good guess. Let's go earlier. Oh, sorry. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Yeah, there you go. Your three patriarchs. Abraham, which I love, by the way, because, because there's three patriarchs, right? Or, right. or is there a fourth? Joseph, so we always talk about Abraham, yeah. Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And yet a lot of people are like, but what about Joseph? And so there was in Jewish thought, there's always this three, then four, three, then four, three, but four. The kind of rhythm and nature to Judaism. And so there were three pillars, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But then there was also like, oh, yeah, but there's also the fourth pillar, and that's Joseph. So what I love about this is I think it's a clear, like, wink, wink, nudge, nudge by Paul. We got the three pillars here, Peter, James, and John of the New Testament church, whatever you want to call this new community. But are we really missing a fourth pillar? Like, who is that fourth pillar going to be? Like, I, I, I don't know. I find that. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think that's totally going on there. But he does. He's, he references these pillars of the church, a clear nod to the Midrash, which spoke of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as the pillars of the Jewish people. They were the leaders on which the family of God is built upon. So Paul indicated in that preceding paragraph that we read that their right hand of fellowship was paramount to him because if he did not receive it, do you remember the phrase he used, Brent? If he did not receive their fellowship, he feared that he would have been running in vain. Running his race in vain. Which I think about this the Apostle Paul, you know, the Paul, the guy that just seems to not care about anybody. In this chapter, we see him caring immensely about accountability and the authority of the church and the pillars, Peter, James, and John. If Paul did not have the blessing of the pillars, he would not, he would have stopped his ministry right there. That is is a big deal for me as a Bible student. This triumvirate was functioning as the head of the early church. These three men 
were the closest to Jesus and his ministry. They walked closer to Jesus than any others. They were invited to places that nobody else went, like places like the Mount of Transfiguration, places like when Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, they were privy to rabbinical explanations that they were ultimately responsible to teach to all the other disciples. In the Jewish world, they were set to lead the charge. Peter, of course, was head over the entire movement as Jesus's right-hand man. James, as we know from church history, not church tradition, but church history, those two things are different, um, and references in the book of Acts, we know that James was a leader in the church of Jerusalem, the Judeans from the south, while John would ultimately become the pastor to Asia and be stationed in Asia to minister to the church there, largely for most of his ministry, he'll be stationed in Ephesus. I find it fascinating to study how the early church functioned in the midst of disagreement. I believe the New Testament gives us ample evidence to suggest that there was even a slight disagreement among the pillars. James as the lead, like imagine Peter, James, and John, in a like Paul comes in, he makes his case, and then they go shut the door and they all talk. Like, what do you picture? Do you picture three guys like all agreeing like, oh yeah, totally. We're all of the same mind here. Or do you picture people like, I don't know. Is somebody in the room going, this makes me nervous? Probably at least one of them. Yeah, I, I, I see James doing that. James, as a leader of the church in Jerusalem, appears to have a belief that all people should be carrying the law. It was at the Jerusalem Council where James leads the charge in figuring out which laws can be required of the Gentiles. Remember, we talked about that a few episodes back, Brent. He was one that stood up and did the whole Noahic covenant thing, like... All right, I love the freedom thing, but we got to make sure that there are some rules on the Gentiles. Right. And of course, we are familiar with the book of James and his pushback against this uh, gospel openness and where it can lead in certain situations. We'll talk about James by the time we're done. Don't you worry. While I see absolutely no contradictions, I'm not suggesting there are any contradictions in our what we call our New Testament, I can certainly feel the presence of James and his desire to make sure the church stays the course throughout the New Testament. It will be, quote, men from James, unquote, that we're going to read about here in Galatians here in just a moment, men from James who are sent to check in on the church. It will be false brothers, quote, unquote, from Judea, the church in the south, who find it impossible to accept this gospel that Paul is preaching. I find the study fascinating in that it illuminates the very human struggle in the midst of this new movement, the hard process of binding and loosing we spoke about before, and the commitment to value the voice and authority of the community as a voice God uses to guide and direct the steps of the individual. Whether it's James who's having, a, having to come to grips with this, um, uh, with the voice of that Jerusalem council and that meeting and their decision and trying to lead an entire church of Judeans who disagree with the stance, or Paul, who would consider his entire ministry uh, a vain, empty race unless he receives the right hand of fellowship. Their commitment to each other should stand as an example to all of us. Let me just pause for just a moment, Brent, and make just a note. I know that some are going to, we kind of touched on this before. It's worth circling back to, I'm going to get a million emails about this. I just know I am, um, about James and who is James. I, I know that some are going to find it hard to accept that James, the brother of Jesus, quote unquote, as in the author of the book of James, or the reference in Acts to Jesus's brother, James, the brother of Jesus, who writes the letter of James, is the same character who is a member of the three disciples who followed Jesus. While many assume the disciples, James and John, 
Remember the sons of Zebedee. Many assume that they're the ones in the three, Peter, James, and John. This is highly unlikely. It's far more likely that Jesus called Peter, James, son of Alphaeus, who would be Jesus's cousin, by the way. His brother would be the right term to use. In their culture, you would have used brother to talk about kin of all kinds. So not his absolute direct brother, but extended brother. Well, and obviously we see the Jews refer to each other as brothers in general, just like right. it's sure. it's you belong to the same right. group that I do. Right, absolutely. And this title that is used of James, the brother of Jesus, is a little bit more specific than that, but you're right. They use this term differently than we are used to. Um, so so it would be, it'd be this Peter, it's James, the son of Alphaeus, John, the son of Zebedee. This is your triumvirate. Rabbinically, you would expect nothing else in the leadership of the church other than the three disciples who walked closest to Jesus. The Peter, James, and John who followed Jesus have to be the Peter, James, and John who lead the church from a Jewish perspective. This is hands down. While this is debated rigorously in scholarship, I believe it's the only position that holds to the inspiration of the text and an honest rendering of church history. So I know I'm going to get a million emails about that. I'm bracing myself already to have to explain that because everybody thinks James, the brother of Jesus, is Jesus's half-brother. I do, I do not agree. Um, and there's lots of scholarship that you can find to agree with whatever position you want to hold. So there you go. But we have a podcast to finish. Perhaps so, we'll circle back at some point and do a special episode on that topic. Maybe. Who knows? All right. So let's see. Even though Paul has given the community the authority to speak into his life, ministry, and calling, he's shown up for their right hand of fellowship. He's far from rolling over and thinking that they're anything more than humans themselves. I love the phrase that you read earlier. Like, I don't... I, what they are, I don't go ahead and read that passage, that weird statement. Whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. <laughs> so he definitely recognizes their accountability. He wants their their fellowship and their relationship, but he also isn't like putting them up on some pedestal they don't belong on either. The ability of Paul to be a mature and well balanced human being is astounding here in my mind. He's not only he not only submits to authority. And the authority of the church leaders and the community of the early church, but he's also adamant about standing for truth and confronting inappropriate behavior when he finds it. Apparently, Peter, the great leader of the church, is far from perfect and infallible because Paul tells the Galatians about an encounter he had with Peter in Antioch. And remember, Peter is the guy, by the way, Brent, who had the first experience with these outsiders being welcomed into the community of faith. He was the one who had to fight for their place within the community to begin with when he had to stand before the church in Antioch and defend his actions with Cornelius. So, so there's that. But go ahead and keep reading for us in Galatians, Brent. Let's, let's keep moving through chapter 2. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. There's those men that came from James, okay? But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. So the leaders in this early Jesus movement remind me a lot of myself at times, full of mistakes and a concern for self. These leaders know what the gospel calls them to do. There are times when they don't have any problem living up to the call of the gospel. When it's these leaders and the Gentiles, they're gracious. They're hospitable. They, 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 they do everything they ought to do as companions. But however, when some of the folks from Judea show up, from the South show up, those from James and the circumcision party, 
Peter and even Barnabas sought to keep the peace by switching to the traditions and practices of Torah-observant Jews. Now, what's often missing from the conversation here, which is why this passage often gets totally misunderstood and misrepresented, is we often are missing a proper treatment of Jewish halakha, which we've talked about before, Brent. We've talked about halakha. Uh, Bible trivia, can you remember what it meant, halakha? Mm, was it the way? Or kind of, the way you walk. It is, it is your oh, yeah, walk. walk. It's how you walk out. So halakha is the set of oral interpretations that surround the written law. In a more poetic sense, halakha is how you walk. After God gave you commandments, you needed to understand how to walk these commandments out. The oral tradition provided that framework. But in the new way that Jesus is inviting us to live, and even during his own ministry, we talked about Jesus critiquing the traditions, the halakhas, where it showed up before already. Uh, so I think Jesus made this clear in, in his own teaching. But some of those understandings were going to get in the way of the truth of the gospel. And so one in particular, we're not talking about written Torah here. We're talking about oral tradition. We're not talking about written scripture. We're talking about oral tradition. One, one in particular would be, uh, as an example, would be uh, the restrictions of eating with Gentiles. While God never commanded this in Torah, the halakha of the Jewish world had deemed it inappropriate to eat with Gentiles as an issue of cleanliness and remaining distinct. And we saw this show up in which story, Brent? In Cornelius. Cornelius and Peter's vision, right? Right. He has this vision and he doesn't want to eat. And God keeps saying, don't call unclean what I called clean. And we realize, Peter realizes, God hasn't called people unclean, but something did. And that something was the... The halakha. The halakha, Right. So the belief of those in the circumcision group was that this distinction needed to remain intact. So Peter and Barnabas find it hard to shake the halakha that they had lived with their entire lives. And you could see Peter reference that in that story with Cornelius in Acts 10. But Paul sees this as inconsistent with this gospel of Jesus, and he calls them on it. Go ahead and read the next couple of verses there. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Now that phrase, Jewish customs, is the reference to the halakha. That Jewish customs is the halakha. While Peter and Barnabas are not asking the Gentiles to be bound by these commandments, or even the miksat ma'aseh haturah, which we looked at earlier, they are having a hard time not playing the role of Judean when the good old boys come to town. Paul confronts Peter publicly and makes it quite clear he no longer lives by this halakha. So why does he hold people, including Gentiles, to it when the folks from Judea are here? Peter is putting on a show for the Judeans. He's acting like he's somebody else who believes something other than what he believes. And I'm sure that Peter had 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 justified this to himself, not in a stupid, evil way, but in a way that made sense to him. He was like, well, Paul, you always say, you've got to become all things to all people. I'm just becoming a Judean for the Judean. And Paul goes, no, 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 you're ruining the gospel is what you're doing because the gospel is this brand new truth. I believe the NIV is correct in keeping the quotations. Does your new NIV, Brent, does it still have quotations around the next paragraph? It does, all the way through the end of the chapter. Fantastic. Uh, that's what I think uh, should be the case. So go ahead and read us the next paragraph there. 
It says, the footnote on it says, some interpreters end the quotation after verse 14, which is what I just read. Right. And uh, ESV is a good example, I think, of a translation that does that. I, I don't agree. I believe Paul is still addressing Peter here in this, this next little portion. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Okay, so first, uh, one of the things I want to point out is the old NIV, the new NIV got rid of this. They used to put in the very first line there, read us the first half of that first sentence, Brent. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles. Okay, the old NIV put sinful Gentiles in quotations. Um, and I believe that that was the right move. They got rid of it in the new NIV. I believe that they had it right the first time. Because what it did, those quotations, I mean, they really had no way to justify why they would do that. But it did help communicate the nature of the statement. Because it's not a derogatory dig on Gentiles as being a bunch of sinners. The Jews understood the nations, the Gentiles, the pagans of the Old Testament, to be the pagan people groups. It was their mission to remain distinct from them and display God to them. The phrase refers to their status as pagans and not their nature or value as human beings. So when he says, we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles, we know that we're not pagans, Paul says. Those of us that are Jews, those of us that are Jews, me and Peter, we know that we're not pagans. And yet, he goes on to speak the rest of the passage. Second, notice Paul's direct reference to the rabbinic arguments surrounding this idea of justification. We have referenced multiple times in in our discussions in this uh, session four here, the debate that existed between the schools of Shammai and the schools of Hillel on whether or not a Jew was justified by faith or by, quote, works of the law. The works of the law are referenced directly in this passage, ergu namu in the Greek. We said Shammai believed that a person was justified or declared righteous, which we, we should probably just deal with that right now. So in, in let me just hit the pause button, justification in the, in, the, in the modern evangelical theological world, we have tied the idea of salvation and justification together. To be justified means to be declared righteous, to be made righteous. Uh, we, we define it different ways in our theological world. And so we, we say that we are saved because God declares us righteous because of the work of Jesus. And in our understanding of the gospel, we've titled those ideas together. And I'm not even necessarily even saying that's even wrong. The problem is, is that's not at all what Jews understood. It's not what Paul's saying here. It's not what Paul understands. It's not what the Galatians understand. It's something that's created about 1,500 years later by a very um, a, a reformation and a world of theology that is steeped in in legal, penal codes, uh, legality, contracts. And that we turned our theology into a very legal, contractual uh, verbiage, language, understanding. And so our understanding of salvation is very contractual. We'll deal with that all throughout session four and session five. So more conversation on that coming. But in the Christian world, we have linked justification and salvation. I am saved because I am justified. We need to stop here and realize in the Jewish world, those two things are, are wildly disconnected. They're not connected at all. Salvation stands completely independently. Like God saves whoever 
he wants to save, however he wants to save them. And it's none of my business because that's all of God's. And the only way we could be saved is by grace. I, I remember growing up and people telling me that Jews believed you could be saved by your works. They believed that you were saved by following the law. No Jew has ever taught that you gain salvation by following the law. That's No Jewish teaching has ever taught that. Of course you're saved by grace. And that's the only way a human being could ever be saved. Are you kidding me? They don't find that to be a revolutionary reformation principle. Uh, that, of course a human being is saved by grace. What they argued about was justification. So of course uh, God's either going to save me or he's not going to save me. That's God's business. What they wanted to know was God declares some of us righteous. Like he declared Abraham righteous. But the question was why? Why did God declare, why does he declare us righteous? Because we're not. We're far from righteous. So why does God declare us righteous? That is the question of justification. And so Shammai said, God declares us righteous because we follow the works of the law. The works of the law. The mixat ma'aseh hatra. Because we eat kosher, because we wear tassels, because we do those things, God looks at us and he says, I see your righteousness and I declare you righteous. But Hillel, Hillel said something totally different. Hillel disagreed and said, just like Abraham, they are justified by faith and simply believing in the promises of God. The New Testament community decided the way of Jesus sided with Hillel, obviously. Paul reminds Peter of this decision, a decision that those of the circumcision group seem to disagree with. So go ahead and read me the next couple verses here. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Now we get lost in all this Bible language, and we kind of, we need to make sure we stay really tied into what Paul's doing here in the conversation. So I want to go back a little bit. I'm going to break the rules here. I'm going to read some Bible verses myself. So... Sorry, still well, some thunder here. That's certainly not a rule. <laughs> so we can jump, at, jump back up here. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says, we know, we, we've, we've heard the arguments between Hillel and Shammai, and we've decided which one is right. We know that we're not justified. Paul said all the way up there three paragraphs ago. He said, we know that we're not justified by the works of the law. We know that we're justified by faith. So we too, us Jews, we too, Paul says, we Jews have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the mixat ma'aseh ha-turah. Shammai's wrong, Paul says. Hillel's right. Because by the mixat ma'aseh ha-turah, no one will be justified. You can't find justification there just by being Jewish. That's not how this works. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, Paul continues, but in, but in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves among the sinners. So if by living by faith, we look around and we're surrounded by pagans, Gentiles, non-kosher eaters, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. Paul says, because if I rebuild what I destroyed, then I would really be a lawbreaker. 
Paul says, if I, if I worked so hard, if I fought for the truth of the gospel to tear down this old idea, this wrong idea, that it's in keeping the rules that makes you justified, if I, if I then freak out because I find myself among the Gentiles, I would then rebuild what I worked so hard to destroy. And, and here's what I love. In the very next paragraph, Paul mentions that through the law, I died to the law. What he means by this is not that he stopped following the law. This is quite clear by simply examining other arguments, assumptions, and behaviors of Paul in the New Testament. A really cursory glance is going to answer some of this. Paul is still observing Jewish festivals. He's still worshiping at the temple. He's still taking the Nazarite vows, which means in the book of Acts, he goes back to Jerusalem to do a Nazarite vow, which means he's offering sacrifices. So some Christians have this idea that the moment that Jesus rose from the dead, like all Jews stopped like being Jewish because now they didn't have to anymore. No. In fact, it's really, really clear in the book of Acts. Like the Jews are still going to the temple. They're still offering sacrifices. They're still, okay, but what about Jesus? Hold on. We'll get to that. We'll get it. We'll get to the whole Jesus and the sacrifice thing. But Paul is still very Jewish. He tells the elders, I've got to go to Jerusalem. He tells the people in the book of Acts, I've got to get back for the festivals. He's helping people do their Nazarite vows. He's eating kosher. So is Peter. Paul is certainly still living according to kosher law. However, he is also saying that it's through Torah itself. It's through studying Torah, knowing Torah, that he learned that he's not justified by following Torah. So Paul says, it's through Torah that I know that that's not where I find justification. He agrees with Hillel and states that Torah itself testified to the justification by faith. It's through the law that I died to the need to be justified by it. I learned that by the Torah itself. This will be seen when Paul, in the next chapter, uses the book of Genesis and Leviticus to argue for the gospel and the justification by faith. Paul's not going to quote some new book. He's going to go all the way back to Torah, and he's going to show how Torah teaches this, just like we've done, Brent, in the BMO podcast. Paul is looking at great leaders like Peter and Barnabas, claiming that if they, in these moments with people who disagree, rebuild what the community of Jesus has worked so hard to tear down, then the gospel would be stripped of its power. If they rebuild what others worked so hard to tear down, then people won't see the story that God has been telling since Genesis. If they rebuild what others worked so hard to tear down, they will actually be lawbreakers, people who are abolishing the teaching of Torah itself. That's a pretty good conversation. Could probably start there, stop there, end of the chapter two. <laughs> it's a big, big conversation. It is. There's a lot of stuff in here, a lot of stuff in here buried in this. So, about that pint of bacon. Pint of bacon. We still got some more to talk about. All right, all right. We'll, we'll come we're back getting to that. there. We'll People come back. may get a sense for where we're headed, but we're getting there. Okay. Well, it sounds great. Uh, if you have any questions about this particular episode, I suppose maybe hold them uh, until we end our little mini-series on Galatians so we can That's right. hopefully address all those questions before. Yep. yep. It's going to be the very end. We've got to get all the way through Galatians, and we'll, we'll come back around with the pint of bacon. Right. All right. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> all right. Well, you can find all the details you need about the show at com. So thanks for joining us in the Baymont Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon. James, Cephas, and Cephas? Cephas. Cephas. Yep. Gee, why do I do that? James, Cephas, and John.